Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and in this episode I'll be joined by Maestro Delta David Geyer, the music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. We'll also hear from Hannah Larson, another member of the Grace community. This episode is intended to whet your appetite for a live event Grace will be hosting later in the month on March 27th at 3 p.m. It's called Hearing the Music, the St. Matthew Passion. At that event, David will guide us through the St. Matthew Passion with a particular emphasis on how Bach intended the music to be used as worship. You may remember that back in 2020, David and I made a podcast unpacking the shorter St. John Passion, which was then broadcast on public radio. Essentially, our March 27th event will be a live version of that kind of discussion. I really hope that everyone listening in the Sioux Falls area will join us for this. So I asked David to walk us through some of the essentials. In the show notes, we'll include links to the Passion Narrative in Matthew, to the Hearing the Music podcast, and to information about the SDSO's upcoming performance. As I was researching the St. Matthew Passion, doing a little bit of homework, one of the questions that surprised me really was that there's a scholarly debate over when this work was first performed. And there are different dates that are given uh, when it might have first been performed. And as I got caught up in that debate, it actually kind of raises an interesting question of whether this word performed is the right way to think about the the debut of a work by Bach. And, and it really isn't, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it was it was written for an actual church service. And the idea of these sacred works being, as you say, performed would have been a foreign concept. You know, that this is not, certainly not that something that performers would, would self-aggrandize by participating in. It was, you know, within the function of a, a church service on Good Friday, and uh, for the glory of God. So I think that's a point that certainly a modern Christian audience might not immediately appreciate about uh, the sacred music that Bach created, that uh, Bach was not only a church musician, but was creating work that was intended for worship services. Correct. Yeah, and it's, it's unbelievably prodigious, the amount of, of music that he composed, like a new a new cantata for every Sunday and a cantata would have been used like throughout, throughout a church service, you know, so you would have, you know, choral pieces and solo pieces and instrumental pieces that would have tied everything together, but it would have been composed uh, according to the lectionary, according to, you know, what the preacher was preaching, like whole new pieces of music created. And yeah. Okay. So he recycled things from time to time, uh, and, uh, you know, used a lot of different influences. But the fact was he was creating a unique worship experience Sunday after Sunday. So in a sense, like we look back 300 years later and we think about, you know, who Bach is and, and how to categorize his work. And I think at least with his sacred music, there's there's a like a category error because we don't think of this as as worship music. We think of it as quote-unquote classical music that meant for the performance hall. And, and it's really not intended that way. 
So it seems to me that that we have kind of a unique opportunity here to talk about this music and and not only to talk about it, but but to experience it with the worship lenses, like to, to see it for what it actually was created for as, as a a tool to use in worship. Yes. Yeah. I mean it's a it's an artistic creation of of the highest order, but absolutely in the service of of the word of God. Yeah. So when we did the podcast about the St. John Passion, there was a certain pattern that emerged from that work, which I found interesting, uh, which is the way that the, so the Passion narrative from Scripture is used as a text, but then there are these other texts that are inter, interposed that Bach takes from outside, like like choruses or, or hymns that would have been familiar to worshipers. And he seems like he uses them almost as a, a commentary on what's happening in the Passion narrative. Is that also true in the St. Matthew Passion? Yes, it follows the same, uh, the same pattern as St. John. It's, it's a larger work than St. John, um, and uh, it came later. Um, but, but you're right. So you have, you have the actual scripture mm-hmm. of the Passion narrative that is generally guided by the evangelist. Uh, you have a singer, uh, Timothy Bench is our tenor evangelist, and uh, and he'll be actually singing the words of Scripture, and the chorus from time to time will participate in the action. For instance, they're the crowd at, at the cross, or they're the crowd calling for his crucifixion and this sort of thing. It's quite dramatic, actually, the way this happens. But but then there are other choruses, like the opening one, um, which which is not scriptural, and the text of which says, Come, you daughters, and help me to mourn. The daughters of Jerusalem is a consistent character hmm. throughout the Passion, and these are the these are the ones that are accompanying uh, Christ on the Via Dolorosa on the way to the cross. You know, the mourners. Um, you can think of you know Mary Magdalene and Mary Jesus' mother. You know, in, in this sense. But then each of the each of the arias, the solos pieces that are sung by the soloists, um, are are reflections, spiritual reflections. They're intended to help us help us imagine, help us appropriate what we've just experienced from the scripture. Um, that and then these again, these soloists sometimes actually take on the the character. So the evangelist will have just sung about Peter denying Christ, and then there will be a solo piece, and the soloist is actually asking for God's forgiveness. Hmm. It seems to me that that's actually like a helpful way of thinking about how this music is a pattern of worship, because if you're imagining what it might look like to uh, use Scripture devotionally, that's essentially what it looks like, right? I might sit down reading a passage of scripture and pausing as I read to reflect on what I've read. And and what I've read might prompt me to pray exactly that kind of prayer, you know, and reading about the crucifixion, feeling conviction for my own sin, which leads me to pray a prayer of confession to God. 
so that that act of private devotion actually has a structure very similar to the the pattern that we see being used in the St. Matthew Passion or the St. John Passion. Exactly. It's, it's, um, it's a way of putting yourself in the scene and imagining yourself as, as St. Peter, you know, in the denial. But then, like you say, to reflect on your own denials, your own, the, the way that, that you too have, have fallen short. But then there is the reception of God's forgiveness. So the chorales are another way. They're, they're choruses, and then there are chorales. And the choruses are, are basically the, 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 the choir taking part in the drama of the passion. The chorales, um, the tunes of the chorales would have been familiar to the congregants at the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. And uh, you might think of this as the audience participation uh, in in this. Although, again, we're not an audience; we're we're a congregation. We're worshiping mm-hmm. together, right? But um, but this was these are tunes that are that are familiar to them, and the words also often familiar to them, but would be tied into the action that we've just witnessed in. Um, whether it's the evangelist or the choir or a soloist or something, it's a time for us collectively to reflect on what's taken place. So earlier I talked to Hannah, a mutual friend of ours, and she told me a story about the way that she had used the St. Matthew Passion during Lent as a form of devotion. And I want to play a little bit of our conversation here. A few years ago for Lent, I chose one of the passion works that Bach did and I think selected St. Matthew just randomly and started listening to it. This was pretty on the heels of having listened to the Christmas Oratorio, which is gorgeous and resplendent and, you know, reading a Christmas story and listening to it through that Lens gave me the idea to do it during Lent. And so I just started listening to it at the beginning of Lent. And I just kept listening to it exclusively for the rest of the Lenten season over and over. And it was penetrating. So when you describe it, I I think a lot of people think... Okay, so this sounds like music appreciation, like you became obsessed with this piece of music. And I'm guessing there was, you know, some aspect of that, but it sounds like there's also a devotional value to it. Yeah, I found the, just the lyrics to it translated into English and it's really accessible. And yeah, read through the lyrics and then, the, you know, they're all pretty much straight scripture. And so I would listen to it while reading through the lyrics and, um, you know, kind of, yeah, meditate. And because I was doing other Lenten scripture readings as well, and it all kind of came together in a way that when I didn't have the lyrics in front of me, but I was just listening to the music and couldn't read along, all of that was like there. And as I became more and more familiar with it, I knew like 
what part we were at because it gets really dramatic and you can kind of, you know, like tell what's going on in the story. If you were talking to someone who is like, you know, I'm I'm not so much into music, but I'm into the crucifixion narrative and understanding it better and and maybe having a deeper more spiritual appreciation is is this something that could benefit me devotionally? Yeah, if in the same way like you had referenced on Sunday, the same thing that makes us want to go see a film portraying the crucifixion and the event leading up to it and to kind of humanize this really, really spiritual thing that we take an entire season of the church calendar to celebrate the way that setting that to thoughtful and intentional music can take the words and marry them to like the spiritual depth and meaning that we know they hold and the way I think the Holy Spirit can use that to um, penetrate our hearts and our spirits with that media is like, I really don't think there's anything else like it. I know that when you did this during Lent, one of the things you really wanted to be able to do but couldn't was attend a live performance. So wh- why was that? I mean, wh- what what would that have added do you think, to the experience of it? Yeah, because each part is a different character, and then some of the choral movements are so dramatic and thrilling that, yeah, that was one of the first things I thought was, oh, it would be spectacular to be in an audience and experience the energy that comes from this, and it comes from a live performance, and then the energy that's created experiencing it with other people. And then I was so disappointed to promptly learn when I asked about it that that's unfortunately not really something that's done and it's just it's too big an undertaking and it's not something that we get to experience really these days. So the fact that we now can experience it is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I was when I saw that I was so excited and the fact that it's here in our town and accessible and yeah, I'm just thrilled and I can't wait. So David, I'm really happy that Hannah can have her wish and actually attend a live performance of the St. Matthew Passion. But I am curious about some of the difficulties that, that she alluded to. Like, why is this a, a, a piece that's less frequently performed? Uh, are there technical challenges that it represents? Or Yes, uh, multitudes of technical <laughs> challenges. Um, yeah, I mean, the... The scope of the work, I mean, it's probably two and a half hours worth of music, mm-hmm. first of all, and it's sung in German from beginning to end. So what choir is up to that task? You know, and then there are two choirs and two orchestras. There's a lot to be done there. For us, you know, our symphony chorus is going to be singing one of the choir parts, and we have two university choirs that are singing the other ones, because that way the choirs don't have to learn all of that music. Um, you have six soloists um, and they have to be really good ones. You know, we're not talking about just, you know, your, your normal congregants 
sure. in your church. Sure. You know, people need that that are truly professional singers. Um, and then there are two orchestras as well. So it's you know, I mean, our our quote unquote performance of this piece um, will have it, it's it's larger than well certainly larger than Bach ever would have used, um, but in in a sense larger than 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 I personally would have chosen if I were doing my ideal St. Matthew Passion. The reason being the choirs and not having enough time mm-hmm. to learn both choir parts, any any one choir. So our symphony chorus is between 90 and 100 people. So you need another 100 people. So we have a choir of 200 plus, you know, or two choirs together of 200 plus, which means that the orchestras also have to be bigger in order to balance those those choirs so we're going to have uh you know towards 300 people Mm -hmm. on stage so that's that that's a big deal well i think you know so this is a performance that's going to take place on april 2nd Mm -hmm. and i think just hearing that it really does make the case for why a person listening now would want to be there because it's not as if you can experience this work performed live any old time you want or, or any place you want. It's, it's a rare thing. It's a little bit like, you know, I think these days when we can stream movies from home, you often ask yourself, why would I go to the movie theater? You know, it's more expensive and a hassle and all that. And yet there are certain movies that are significant enough to where I, you'd really like to see them as they were intended to be seen on the big screen, it seems to me that this is one of those opportunities that has a similar, like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to experience a work like this. And I think for a Christian, there's another angle to that as well. It's not only a once in a lifetime opportunity to experience this great work, but also to do it in a worshipful way. And during this season, of Lent where we're looking forward to the celebration of the resurrection. Yeah, that's, it's by design that we, we pro as the SDSO, we program these works during the Lenten season. Um, so that it gives this opportunity for the wider church community to, uh, to, to partake right. of this. Um, and the, the movie analogy is apt up to a point, but I would say even more so, um, because of the just the the aspect of live performance, like it's anything can happen right. in a live performance. It's like you know in theater or whatever else, and you have the expressions of you know of the orchestra of the chorus himself of each of the soloists. And I actually sent out a note uh, this week to to the soloists, you know, telling them how much I'm looking forward to working with them, but in but encouraging them to put themselves in character, you know, not to be over overly dramatic, but to actually think about the the message of what they're singing and how they're going to communicate it to our audience, to our congregation, as it were, like, you know, how, what, what do these words actually mean in the context of the larger passion? What is your role to play? Here. So this is a real opportunity. It's a very different experience from sitting at home and right. listening to a recording of Boxing Matthew Passion. 
Right. Well, as a pastor, I, I just want to amen that in the sense that it is the difference between private devotion and corporate worship, mm. right? That absolutely, you know, I just made the comparison earlier that I can sit and read a passage of scripture and then I can reflect on it. And that is wonderful, devotional, worshipful. But there is something else that happens when we come together and worship together collectively. And I think similarly here, you know, you could listen to a recording of the St. Matthew Passion, and, and that's a great way to prepare for the experience. But actually experiencing it in person is another order of magnitude. And, and so that's, I guess, the argument for uh, being there for the performance on, on April 2nd. But on March 27th, we're going to be talking about a lot of this stuff in more detail. And so I, I also want to give a rationale for why you don't want to miss that. So on the 27th in the afternoon, that's a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock in the Sanctuary of Grace, you and I are going to be talking about the St. Matthew Passion. It'll mainly be you talking and me pretending like I'm an idiot who's asking obvious questions. Um, not a lot of acting will be required. I was going to say, you're going to have to act a lot. <laughs> Come on, Mark. You know, but but uh, I, I just want to give people a little bit of a taste. We've given them, you know, a sense already in our conversation of some of the, the insights that we'll try to to push, but but a big difference between what we're, we're talking about now and what you'll experience on the 27th will be actually having some passages of music to illustrate. Recordings what, of, right. of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would try to hit all of these different aspects mm -hmm. so that people understand, you know, what does it sound like when the, when the evangelist is singing and, you know, uh, expressing a, a certain text from the Bible? What does it sound like when the chorus is calling for Jesus's crucifixion? Um, what what is a an aria sound like when, when when the soprano sings? You know, it's it's out of love that my savior will die. You know, and it's very poignant moments. Um, what what are the devotional aspects of this for the congregation? Uh, you know, a very familiar hymn, uh, "O Sacred Head, Thou Wounded." You know, most congregations know this tune. Bach uses that tune six different times throughout the Passion. The same tune, um, different texts, but also harmonized totally differently every single time in different keys. And this is something, you know, we'll touch on a little bit, but the harmony, the way that the harmony ties the entire two and a half hours of music together to help it be, be a co cohesive whole. This is, as a casual listener, you would never even be aware of it except subliminally. Like why, why does this sound? Wow. Like, why is this inevitable that we're at this moment now? And it sounds this way, you know, it's not by chance, Bach, right. Bach didn't just write, you know, a song, <laughs> you know, th that would be appropriate for this thing. I mean, he, he tied the entire two and a half hours of music together in, in, in a absolutely masterful way. So these are the things that I'll, I'll try to point out and help people to prepare for the, the performance, but also for how they might experience it. I, I like the way you put that. It really gives us kind of the, the, the two angles here, that being with us on the 27th will better prepare you to experience the work, 
but will also better prepare you to experience it devotionally and, and have that component to it as well. You know, one of the things that grace that we talk about a lot is how we try to be intentional about uh, what we do in worship, about what we do as a church. If that idea of intentionality is one that appeals to you, the more you discover about Bach's work and, and, and what he's doing on every level, I think to call it intentional is an understatement. Mm. There, there is a a degree of intentionality that he brings to his work uh, that is informed by his faith and it is awe-inspiring. And once you get a taste of that, I think you will easily see how Bach's work lends itself to worship. It's, uh, it's also unsurpassed. This is the thing about Bach. I mean, his name is venerated for a reason. Um, he would never have imagined that this would ever happen, you know, 300 years later that people would still be talking about him. But the fact is that there's a very real sense in which music has never gone beyond what Bach achieved 300 years ago. In the classical music world or any other sense, you know, it has a lot to do with the, with the use of harmony, which... You know, Bach did not invent, but could actually say that he pretty much perfected it, <laughs> you know, and that all the other composers that came after him, the, the Haydn's and Mozart's and Beethoven's and Mahler's and whatnot, took their cue from Bach. And it, it I mean, never in the history of music has, has the level of technical mastery, the, um, the, ins, the inspiration and both musically and, um, you know, the theological insight come together in such a perfect way. Mm. I think Alfred North Whitehead once said that uh, the whole Western intellectual tradition consisted of a series of footnotes to Plato. And mm. it sounds as if we might say something similar about the history of, of music and Bach. Right. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't even have the Beatles without, <laughs> without you know, Bach's mastery of harmony. You know, like it just not none of it makes sense without that foundation. Yeah. Well, these are the kinds of things that we'll be exploring on the 27th. And so, if you're listening to this, I hope you'll join us on March 27th at three o'clock for hearing the music, Saint Matthew Passion. And then, of course, join the SDSO on April the 2nd to actually experience this work being performed. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 